All right, it is time for another Lawyer Talk Q&A where we are taking questions on the website, lawyertalkpodcast.com, or sometimes I take questions upstairs at the law firm at ohiolegaldefense.com, or even calls I get. Sometimes I confess, I sort of summarize or condense several questions I've been getting uh, into uh, one question and then answer it here. But this one happens to be a specific one. It came from a gentleman named Andy. We're going to uh, not use the full name to protect the innocent, so to speak. Um, and I'm going to do something a little bit different before I read this question. I'm going to tell you, uh, this is an interesting question because it dovetails with some other issues that I wanted to discuss anyway. Uh, I was going to do a legal breakdown on uh, on the Aubrey case and the federal plea that happened, but uh, Andy's question sort of gives me a segue into it, so I'm going to try to kill both those things with one lawyer talk Q&A stone, so to speak. So without further ado, here's Andy's question. I went to court over a speeding ticket. Uh, the crime was considered an infraction when I appeared before the court. I tried to enter an innocent plea. As I was saying, I plead inno, and then the judge cut him off uh, and interrupted him halfway through and said that uh, she would only accept a guilty plea. She slammed the gavel down uh, and said, you're guilty. At the time, uh, Andy was a teenager. Ticket wasn't too much money. Plus, he had heard before uh, he went to the, this judge's courtroom that she was a real uh, ball breaker, his words. Uh, so I paid the fine. I later once saw the same judge handle a case before mine where the defense and the prosecutor set up a plea deal where the defendant, after pleading guilty, would not do any jail time. After explaining the deal to the judge, the defendant pleaded guilty, and the judge turned around and said, not in my courtroom, and gave the defendant jail time anyway. My question is, because the speeding ticket was just an infraction, was it legal for the judge not to accept my innocent plea? All right, there's a little bit to unpack here. Um, first of all, judges uh, do not have to accept uh, pleas of guilty or uh, pleas, uh, plea agreements. Now, as far as an innocent plea, what in our here in Ohio, we would call that a not guilty plea. We would just uh, file a document and or appear in court and or both uh, and say, judge, we plead not guilty. Uh, we would demand a trial if it is a case for which a jury trial is appropriate. We would demand a jury trial. If there is no jury trial, we would demand a court trial, and the case should be assigned. Now, so I, I don't understand how and why this judge would not have accepted your guilty plea. It sounds like uh, she probably overstepped her bound. She overstepped her bounds on that one. Um, I do not think a judge has a constitutional right, or maybe to put it this way, I think it would violate a a person's constitutional right if a judge did not permit them to plead not guilty. Now, sometimes things happen. Uh, that aren't so, or that get sort of blurry. People show up in court and they say, uh, I'm guilty, but I want to explain why I'm innocent. Uh, I just want to get it over with. Well, judges then, sometimes in a busy courtroom setting, particularly traffic courtroom setting, they can get sort of uh, flustered by that and say, look, you got two choices, guilty or not guilty. Sounds like you pled guilty. You're guilty. I don't want to hear any more about it. Um, now, that might infringe or start to encroach or violate your right of allocution, which means that you get to say, uh, and offer mitigation before sentencing. It's not allocution is not just for people about to die uh, who have been convicted. They it's for anybody. So if I get convicted of speed, I get to explain the circumstances of it, why I was speeding, maybe uh, why I put guilt even though I wasn't speeding, etc. And judge has to listen to that too. Um, I think that's the Eighth Amendment. Those pesky Bill of Rights amendments. Anyway, uh, to the question, Dandy's questions. I don't think that was proper. I think the judge should have accepted a not guilty plea and set the matter for trial um, unless there's something else going on. Now on to Andy's uh, part two of Andy's question. 
in the case before his, it sounds like a different occasion, uh, the defense and the prosecutor set up a plea deal, and uh, the defendant wanted to plead guilty. There was a recommendation for no jail time. Uh, the judge uh, accepted the guilty plea and then said, I don't care what you're recommending, you're going to jail. Well, a judge has a right to do this most of the time. Uh, generally speaking, judges are not bound by plea deals. Now, what I mean by that is let's say I negotiate a resolution on, say, an assault case with my with a prosecutor. And as part of the negotiated plea, uh, we actually write down that my client will plead guilty to uh, disorderly conduct. He was charged with assault, but uh, he's going to plead guilty to disorderly conduct, and the prosecutor is going to recommend no jail time, even though my client could get up to 30 days in jail. So the judge says, uh, or the prosecutor says, Judge, uh, here's the deal. The defendant has uh, agreed to plead to a lesser included offense, that of disorderly conduct, in exchange for the plea of guilty. We're going to recommend to the court that the defendant not be uh, placed in jail, rather uh, put on probation or community control or whatever uh, the terminology would be in that particular court. Uh, and the judge says, that's great, Mr. Defense Attorney, Mr. Palmer, Mr. Defendant, is this the sum and substance of the agreement? Yes, Judge, it is. This is what we've agreed to. All right, well, after hearing all the evidence, after listening to both sides discuss what happened in the case, I understand you're making this recommendation, uh, Mr. Prosecutor, but I'm not going to follow it. I'm going to put the defendant in jail for 30 days because I think he's a no-good, rotten SOB. Uh, so off you go, out the back door, gavel slams. Um, that happens. It happens periodically. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Uh, I've actually stopped judges uh, in midstream sometimes to say, are you about to put my client in jail? Because if so, we're changing. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to do it. And uh, you know, judges don't like when I do that, but I've, I've tried to do that before. I've even had other scenarios where I go talk to a judge in advance, where I say, judge, uh, the prosecutor's recommending no jail. Is that cool with you? And the judge says, yeah, I think that's cool. But then in the course of the plea hearing, the judge changes his mind and imposes a jail sentence anyway. Um, sometimes that happens after they hear the alleged victim make a statement, um, you know, sort of a tear-jerking uh, emotional plea to uh, about all the horrible things that occurred as a result of this act. Um, other times, judges just change their mind, or maybe intentionally or unintentionally, just um, hoodwinked us. But that happens too. In other words, the judge is not generally bound by a plea agreement. And, and if you pay attention to the small print and what is actually being discussed at the time of your plea, judges have to go through your constitutional rights. They have to explain to you that you understand, sir, by Entering this plea of guilty, you are admitting all the facts and circumstances of the offense. You are admitting that you're guilty. And by admitting that you're guilty and entering this guilty plea, you are giving up a number of important constitutional and statutory rights. Among those rights, you have a right to a trial by jury. You have a right to have the prosecutor prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt to the satisfaction of the jury at a trial where you are presumed to be innocent. In other words, you start not guilty. Also at that trial, you would have a right to have an attorney represent you. You have one here today, I presume, sir, that would be the attorney you would have, but uh, you have a right to an attorney at trial. You have a right to have your attorney cross-examine or confront the witnesses against you. You have a right to issue subpoenas, to compulsory process to procure your own witnesses at trial. You can't make them uh, say what you want, but in theory, you can get them to trial uh, and call them as witnesses to testify. You have a right at that trial to remain silent. They can't force you to take the witness stand and offer testimony against yourself. You can just say, I decline to testify, and you're entitled even to an instruction to the jury, if you so desire, that 
the they're not allowed the jury that is is not allowed to hold that against you uh if you go to trial there would be objections there would be rules of law that would be discussed uh, decisions that made that were made and if you lost the trial you could appeal those directly to the court of appeals and you have a right to appeal should you lose a trial now you're going to enter a guilty plea and you're going to waive all those important rights and instead you're going to plead guilty you're going to be found guilty and we're going to proceed to sentencing either either today or sometime soon in the future now that's the general dialogue that occurs but then there's one more thing that happens typically speaking do you understand sir the judge would ask that I am not bound by any recommendations set forth in this plea agreement that this agreement in writing under criminal rule 11 uh, is the sum and substance of the agreement and it says right here on in paragraph whatever that uh, I can impose whatever sentence that the law permits I'm not bound by recommendations uh, made by the parties and uh, you know we usually think that the judge will go along with it particularly uh, if uh, the judge has said in advance that they'll go along with it but uh, they don't always, and that's a problem. That can be an issue. Uh, now, in sounds like in uh, Andy's case, uh, at least the second part of the question, uh, where the guy was trying to plead guilty with a recommendation, the judge did not go along with the recommendation and said, I don't care what you lawyers are saying. I'm sending this guy to jail. Now, as attorneys, as uh, litigants in a courtroom, uh, we all hate that. I, I hate when judges um, don't follow our recommendation. My my humble philosophy is that I'm a defense attorney and the prosecutor is working for the state of Ohio. Uh, we have done this for a long time. We have worked the case. We know the case. We have explored uh, all the reasons for doing something like we know best. And, um, you know, that may sound a little bit arrogant, but I don't care. Uh, when we make a recommendation to the judge, we're saying, judge, we have worked on this for months, sometimes uh, maybe just days or sometimes even hours. But either way, we know the case better, and uh, here's what we think should happen. And we're not coming at this willy-nilly. We, we are agreeing to it. Uh, but alas, judges don't always see it the way we see it, and uh, that's what happened here in Andy's case. Now, I'm going to shift gears for a second. Ordinarily, I would just sort of wrap it up with a Q&A, but I was going to do a legal breakdown anyway on something similar because there's a nice, uh, there's a nice segue here to the Aubrey case. And in the Aubrey case, if anybody followed this, after the state court murder convictions, the uh, the federal authorities indicted the litigants or the defendants on hate crimes for uh, committing the crimes with a racial animus. Now, my, my philosophy on hate crimes has been, uh, I've been very vocal about it. I hate hate crimes. I think it's stupid. I think all crimes uh, are defined well enough, but uh, it is what it is, the legislative Legislative bodies have determined that there should be hate crimes, so there are. Um, anyway, uh, here's what was going on. The United States Attorney's Office took the case uh, after the murder convictions. Now, this is interesting because I recently did a, a quick breakdown or Q&A on dual sovereignty, how people could be prosecuted for seemingly the same thing in both federal and state courts. Uh, go check that out. It'll give you a little bit of background to it. But that's what was happening here. So that wasn't good enough, apparently, for... Uh, the governmental entities that these uh, litigants were going to go do, or these defendants were going to go do life in prison in state court. They wanted another pound of flesh in federal court because we really, really, really are going to make it guilty or make them bad or whatever. Anyway, that's what happened. So uh, now here's where strategy comes into play. So they had some defense lawyers who were saying to their clients, look, you're indicted on hate crimes uh, in federal court and they carry 30 years or whatever it is in prison, uh, let's take a peek. And you could say, well, screw that. We're going to go to trial on everything. We're going to scorch the earth. 
And uh, the crafty defense lawyers are saying, well, whoa, 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 hold up a second. Uh, it would be better for you to do this time in federal prison instead of state prison. And generally, there's a reason for that. Um, I've never been in prison, but I think people would tell you that federal prison is better than state prison uh, most of the time. It's a, they're better facilities. Maybe they're not as um, uh, violent. Who knows? But uh, anyway, that was what they were after. They wanted to get their time served in federal prison instead of the state prison. So that was a downside of the dual sovereign doctrine because you know they're getting prosecuted in federal court. I mean, from the government's perspective, uh, they're getting prosecuted in federal court, but they want to. Um, the, the defendants are like, cool, I'll, I'll sign up for that. That way I don't have to go to this uh, Georgia state prison on the chain gang or whatever it would be. Uh, I can do my time in a comfy, air-conditioned federal prison. I'm being a little bit facetious there. Uh, anyway, so the the defense attorneys and the U.S. attorney for the government uh, started to uh, do some horse trading, and they came up with a plea agreement. Now, there is an exception to the general rule that I just discussed a minute ago that judges aren't bound by plea agreements. In federal court, and I'm sure in some states, uh, I'm not familiar with all state practice, but in federal court, there is something uh, called a binding plea agreement. In uh, federal rule 11, uh, I don't know, it's C or uh, A, hold on a second, we'll look it up. Uh, Federal rule 11 uh, C1C, it talks about binding plea agreements, and here's how that works. Uh, I would go to the U.S. attorney. I've done this, in fact, let me back up. I've done this once in my career in all my federal practice where I went to the U.S. attorney on a drug case and I said, look, my guy, he ain't no snitch. He ain't ever going to be no snitch and he ain't going to provide no cooperating information. But what he will do is agree to plead guilty. He'll take his uh, lumps and uh, we're just going to set, we're going to, we're going to agree with a binding sentence on the judge. We're going to just state what we think the sentence is, say eight years in the federal penitentiary. Um, Will you agree to that? And the U.S. attorney says, yeah, I'll agree to that. And I said, why don't we make it a binding agreement so we can go to the judge, and if the judge accepts the plea under Rule 11C1C, it becomes binding on the judge, too. In other words, that is the sentence. So here's how this works. We go to the judge with a written document that says, look, we're pleading guilty, Um, we're admitting guilt, and we are recommending and uh, we are creating a binding recommendation on you, judge, of eight years. And what we're really saying to the judge is, if you accept this plea, if we do a plea hearing and you say, I accept your guilty plea and find you guilty, then you're telling us this is what the sentence is going to be. We know it in advance. Um, that is, uh, that's a binding plea agreement. And I don't know for sure, and I admit I only spent a, a few minutes here trying to um, dig up a copy of the plea agreements in the Aubrey case, but I suspect that that's what they did. I suspect they went to the judge with a binding plea agreement suggesting a 30-year sentence. And uh, the idea, again, from the defense side was, look, we can get uh, our our life sentence in state court, so we're going to serve that in federal court instead. You only have one life to serve. You might as well do it in a nicer facility. On the prosecution side, they were getting a couple things. They were getting, one, an admission that it was a racially motivated crime. Whether it was or wasn't, on the record, they they could say he admitted to being racial, or he admitted that this was a racially motivated crime. 
The other thing they were getting, I think, that I haven't seen discussed is that uh, certainly in the Aubrey trial, they are going to uh, appeal. They're going to, in the state court convictions, they're going to file an, an appeal, they're going to challenge the convictions, and they're going to tie it up in the appellate courts, and they may win. They may even get a new trial. But if they're doing 30 years in the federal penitentiary, uh, it doesn't matter if they win the state court appeal, they're still doing 30 years. So you basically locked in the, um, you've locked in a lengthy sentence you have laid off the risk, this is from the perspective of the government, they've locked in a, a lengthy sentence, they've laid off the risk of losing an appeal and having to retry the case in state court, and they get to scream out loud that this was racially motivated. All right. They go to the judge. Judge says, I ain't taking the plea. I ain't accepting it. It's binding on me. I ain't taking it. I ain't taking it because uh, the family members of the victim are uh, up in arms about this. They don't want me to take it. They want to have their say-so in court about what the sentence ought to be, and they don't think they should get uh, federal time instead of state time. Uh, I want to hear what they have to say, and I'm not going to accept a plea agreement. That has ramifications, um, and one of the ramifications is if I'm on the defense side, I would say, well, screw this then. We're just going to fight the case. We're going to uh, we're going to have a trial because I didn't act in a racially motivated way. What do I got to lose now? Um, you can only uh, find me guilty, and uh, I'm not going to plead. Uh, so now I'm going to trial, and you know you could lose that trial from the government's perspective, and that was part of the risk that they were laying off. Um, but the judge made the decision, and uh, that stands. Now it could be there's always unintended consequences of such decisions, and I'm sure the judge is smart, and I'm sure I think it was a she. I'm sure she has uh, thought this through. But it could now be that the one of the one or all these defendants win their appeal in state court that they get their case reversed. They could even win the case the second time and walk free. They could go to trial in federal court on these uh, on these hate crimes and win that and walk free. And uh, they could end up having a complete 180 opposite adverse, if you want to look at it that way from the government standpoint, adverse consequence. I'm not saying any of that's going to happen, but the idea of plea agreements, the idea of any agreement, the idea of reaching some accord in really in criminal defense or any legal issue or anything we do in life is to have um, have some uh, have something we can rely on know what we're getting in advance and uh, and, and take out of the equation the unknowns uh, that way we can we can lock it in we can finalize and we can move forward um, because of uh, what I'm going to just call it flat out what it is because of politics here uh, because of the uh, the notion that we want this to look a certain way, uh, there's no finality, and now we've got some unknowns, indeterminate possibilities looming out there. So uh, I highly recommend that everybody forward this to uh, all those involved so they can uh, share the wisdom of legal talk or, or lawyer talk Q&A and or legal breakdown. This is like a Q&A breakdown, that's what we'll call this one, because I've combined several of our genres here to come up with uh, an answer to Andy's question. Uh, now, uh, just as a general matter, if you want your question answered right here on Lawyer Talk Q&A, it's simple. Go to lawyertalkpodcast.com, just like Andy did, and submit a question. I will get to it here down at the 511 Studios. Uh, if you need legal help upstairs at the law firm, ohiolegaldefense.com or 614-224-6142. I'm getting questions and uh, in both places from folks all over the country as they listen to these, uh, and I'm happy to uh, to oblige. I, I sometimes can't answer questions uh, regarding other state laws. Sometimes I can give some general uh, directions. Sometimes I even help you find lawyers in your own hometown. But 
Anyway, I can't do any of that unless you reach out with your question. If you want us to cover a topic, same thing. I, or go to uh, lawyertalkpodcast.com and just say, hey, look, do a, do a uh, lawyer talk breakdown on whatever. I'll, I'll if, it, if it suits my fancy, I, even if it doesn't, I'll try to get it done for you. Uh, generally speaking, uh, if you want to support us with all this effort we put in, you can uh, become a Patreon. That's simple. You can find the link at uh, lawyertalkpodcast.com. You can even go to channel511.com uh, and see the link for our Patreon there. Uh, sign up for our podcast, like it, do whatever you're supposed to do to give us all the support you can so I can keep doing this and bringing you this awesome stuff for free. Uh, so for now, I am done. This has been Lawyer Talk Q&A Breakdown off the record, on the air, until now.